Well, we are in a sermon series called I Struggle With. I struggle with. Looking at things as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we struggle with. We've looked at struggling to tell others about Jesus. How on earth do you do that? We, uh, Henry came to talk about I struggle with difficult conversations. Loving but difficult conversations. And then Ash spoke brilliantly last week on hearing God's voice. I struggle to hear God's voice. Well, this morning we're looking at an, another issue that we often struggle with, and that is I struggle with worship. I struggle with worship. I'm not talking about worship as all of life, which is true, but this singing stuff that we do on Sundays. I've heard so many times, and I echo them sometimes, man, what's with all the singing? It's too long, too repetitive, too boring, too forced, too emotional, too shallow. And then we hear things like, well, I just didn't get anything out of worship this morning. And in fact, you know, I'll just show up in time for the sermon and then check out for brunch after that. What is it with all the singing? I struggled with worship. For years, growing up in the church, I struggled with worship. Maybe you were like me, dragged along to church by my parents, sat down on the chair next to them, and the only entertaining thing, the only fun thing about being in church as a kid was the coloring pack you got when you walked in. And you, I was normally lying down on the floor underneath the seats doing some coloring or something. But I remember everything changed when I was 16. My parents told me that we were moving city. We moved about two hours away and therefore to a new church. And I went to the youth group for the first time at this new church, expecting it to be like my last youth group which is generally, um, the activities consisted of looking cool, working out who was kind of the most powerful in the group, and passively flirting with members of the opposite sex. That's just kind of what youth group was, kind of like L.A. Uh, but, <laughs> and I remember that first night I walked in wearing my best 80s outfit. But something different happened that evening because I walked in and they surprised me with what the theme of the evening was. And I said, what is it? What's going on tonight? And they said, oh, it's exciting. Once a month we, we do something called a praise party. I said, I, a party? I get the party bit. What's, what's that? He said, praise party. I said, what on earth is a praise party? And they said, well, we gather around the piano and then we worship. And I go, okay, and, and then what? It's like, no, 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 we worship. I went, what? For how long? I don't know, two to three hours? And I could hear inside the pit of my stomach this cry of, no! <laughs> and so we began. <laughs> and for the first half an hour, I was thinking, this is so lame. The second half hour, I could see people my age experiencing something I've never experienced before. I mean, they were on their knees in worship. They were crying in joy. They looked like they didn't want it to finish. Then the next hour, I thought, I don't, I don't have this. 
And then during that hour, the Lord changed my heart to, this is real worship. Lost in wonder, encountering God, being shaped by his presence. And I was in. And that, that was the beginning of my worship journey. And I want to look this morning at what it means for you to begin that same journey. Maybe you're far along, but there's much further to go. Or maybe you're like me, thinking, I just don't get all this singing stuff. But worship is God's greatest gift to us after his, the gift of his own son, Jesus Christ. For it's in worship that we are formed and shaped to be like him. And it's in worship that we encounter him and encounter his presence. So let's look at Psalm 95 and look at this journey of worship that I want to encourage you. You cannot survive in your walk with the Lord unless you discover and journey in this beautiful gift of worship. Psalm 95. If you have your Bibles, Go to that or it's on the screen and let's read together. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In the, his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his. For he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if, you, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. We need worship. We need to come and worship. God doesn't need our worship. It's we, his people, who need it. God does not have, as one person called it, a Tinkerbell effect, which is, unless we believe in him, he's going to frizzle up and die. He's not nervous needing his ego being stroked. No, worship is his great gift to us. And I want to drill into two th areas of that gift that we see in this psalm this morning. The first is this, worship is counter-formation. Worship is counter-formation. When we come and sing, when we come and worship God, when we sing these songs on a Sunday together, or whenever we gather, we are entering into discipleship, a way of being reformed around the truth of who God is, what He's done, and who we are in Him. You see, when we become followers of Jesus, Jesus says it's like being born again. We have a whole new worldview, a whole new life ahead of us with new visions, a new, a new identity in Christ, new practices. 
new ambitions, new goals, new values. We are to love mercy and justice, to take care of the poor and the oppressed, to not think about ourselves but to think about others, to seek God's glory, to obey Jesus, not ourselves, to only do what the Father does and not our own fleshly desires. All this new life, Jesus says, is the way to life. It's how you were created. It will be abundant with joy, but this is the new life I have for you. The challenge is we live in this world where we are not only being shaped by the Holy Spirit, but we are also being shaped by other things in the opposite direction. Every minute of every day when we live in this amazing city called Los Angeles, we are being shaped by the city, shaped by culture into its ideologies, into its values. And these forces are strong. These forces bend us out of shape. These forces are seductive. Sometimes they ring true and they, they seem good and beautiful. But Paul warns us in Romans 12, he says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Because as Jesus said, it's these things that will still kill and destroy you, but I've come that you may have life. And so when we're out in the world in the week, it's so difficult because we're being shaped all the time into the values of this world. And it's worship that reshapes us. It's worship that reshapes us around the gospel, reshapes us about, around the true God found in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I know the strength of these forces trying to shape me away from Jesus and the kingdom of God. We all have these forces in, in our lives. It begins with our family of origin, the forces of family of origin. Growing up where we are shaped so much by our home, our family, for better or for worse. You know, I, I was born and I was the fourth, in uh, the youngest and the fourth, and I adopted this role as peacemaker. Who, who else in the birth order is the peacemaker child here? You know, you're constantly thinking, okay, I've got to make peace, and I, I can bring that into the future. Many of you have got more difficult stories that you hear the words said of you, the experiences in your past, shaping you. It's not just your family of origin. There are economic forces shaping you. I used to be in marketing where I used to be in charge of a, a brand, and when we were devising laundry commercials, I was in charge of a laundry detergent, we would so often go, how can we create desire? How can we create dissatisfaction that the laundry detergent of yesterday that we celebrated last week as the new amazing thing is now terrible. You need something new. We're shaped by what we read and see. Educational influence. Many of us were raised in different cultures with different worldviews through the educational system. But of course, the dominant ideology, the dominant cultural shaping happens because we live in Los Angeles. And every day, every hour, every minute of the day, we are being shaped towards the values of the city that move us away from the values of Jesus. 
The values such as were shaped towards doubt, where having any kind of conviction seems to be intolerant of others. Shaped towards insecurity and anxiety, where you come to this city and you were a big fish in a small pond before you came here. And now all of a sudden there's people everywhere, more beautiful, thinner, more talented, better preachers than you were before you came. And suddenly you're living in this crisis of insecurity, shaped towards individualism, where this city is all about getting ahead because it's so competitive. And you know what? Every relationship is not a friendship. It's a networking opportunity because you've only got limited time to make it. So everybody becomes something to use as opposed to someone to know, shaped towards striving. I've got to do it. I've got to make it. Shaped towards non-commitment. Have you noticed the non-commitment values of the city? I need to be authentic to who I am in the moment. So I can't commit to anything because I may change. My va- I don't know how I'm going to feel tomorrow. And therefore, I may be married today. I may not be married tomorrow. I may go to that party. I may not go to that party. I may, because we worship a sense of Authenticity. Regardless if our authentic desires may destroy us or others around us. And then we're shaped by idolatry. The city tells us, if you worship these things, you will have the good life. If you worship celebrity, if you worship other people's opinions of you, if you worship leisure, pleasure, or treasure, if you worship success, if you get these things, if you devote your life to these things, if you make sure that these things are successful, you will find the good life. All these things are shaping us every minute of every day. Have you noticed these forces? No wonder then we arrive on Sunday completely bent out of shape, completely, and if you don't realize that you are, we're completely influenced. But praise the Lord, we arrive on Sunday, and God draws us into his presence, and in worship, he reshapes us. He reshapes us around who he is. He reshapes us around the story he has for us. He reshapes us around his love and care for us. He he reshapes us around our security in him. He reshapes us around our need for him. Worship is counterformational to the forces of our world. James K.A. Smith wrote this. He said, Christian worship is essentially a counterformation to those rival liturgies or practices that we are immersed in. These cultural practices that covertly capture our loves and our longings, miscalibrating them and orienting us to rival versions of the good life. This is why worship is at the heart of discipleship. Worship is such a gift, because in worship, God reshapes us. Lizzie and I are enjoying this amazing new TV show. We're only just caught up with it. You may have watched it and binged it already. It's called The Great Pottery Throwdown. Who's seen it? Who's watching it? 
Come on, Lizzie, don't leave me hanging here. <laughs> okay, all right, so let me explain. How many of you have seen the great British Bake Off? All right, there we go. Now imagine, same principle, same English accents, but no longer about bakery, but pottery. <laughs> I know, it's enticing and it's exciting all at the same time. Now, I was pretty skeptical until one day by myself, I thought, you know, what else am I going to watch? I finished Netflix during COVID. So <laughs> let, me, let me watch this. So I watched it and I'm hooked. And then I got my wife hooked. And I'm going to get you hooked too. <laughs> but see, what happens is I had never knew clay was so fascinating, so I'm going to geek out on clay. So you've got this clay, and you've got it on this wheel that they're pedaling away, and they're forming this clay, and they're forming it. It was a lump, just an ugly brown lump, and then, but with a bit of water on top to soften it, they're shaping it into something amazing, or hopefully amazing. That's part of the fun. And they're shaping it. The challenge is every now and again, it just goes weird, right? It just goes weird. And it doesn't really look that beautiful, but they're shaping it. And then the problem is that they then, if they take it off the wheel and stop putting water on it, and then put it in the room for it to dry, the water evaporates out of the clay and it stiffens and it solidifies its shape. And, that, and you can no longer mold it after that. It is what it is. In Isaiah 64 verse 8, the prophet says, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are the potter, and we are all the work of your hand. So if you notice, like on that wheel, we are like clay in L.A. And when L.A. gets its hands on us, it is molding us out of shape, away from the likeness of Jesus. And we, we don't... It's, we don't notice it sometimes. It just kind of creeps up on us. And the problem is, God says, you need to come into my presence and let me get my hands on you. Put some water on and let me reshape you. Because if you don't let me reshape you on a regular basis, you will be in that oven drying out and you'll be permanently deformed from who I've created you to be. See, worship is that space where we come before the potter and he puts water over us and gently with loving hands brings back the beauty to his creation. That's why I need worship. And without it, I realize, give me a few weeks and I feel I'm drying in the oven out of shape. Worship is like the water with the master potter reshaping us. Counter formation around Jesus. Now this is worship because worship is more than just reading. People think, well, can't I just read? Can't I just listen to sermons? Those are good practices, but there's something throughout the biblical story unique around sung worship. Because in sung worship, it's like a sermon set to music where the Holy Spirit comes in that moment and can actually use that elongated space where heart and mind are active together, where our bodies are active together. There's something about that space that God inhabits the praises of his people. 
And he starts to reshape us. He starts to form us. He starts to heal us. We need to be reshaped. I need to come in on Sundays. I don't know about you, but I need to come in on Sundays. And sometimes I don't realize it, but I'm singing a song and go, oh, gosh, thank you, Lord, that I am not in charge. (laughs) You are. Oh, my word, Lord, thank you that this life is not all there is. I was starting to make the most of this life, assuming that there wasn't a life to come. Thank you. Oh, Jesus, thank you that I can be obedient to you and not making up things as I go along, but if I obey you, you will lead me into the true good life. You see, all these things I forget, and I'm paid not to forget. (laughs) Right? Never mind you guys. you got normal jobs. (laughs) But if we all forget, right? And worship is that place where we come in and the Holy Spirit takes these truths from our head and melts them in our hearts. Tim Keller said this, it's in worship that the things I believe with my head become real to me. It's as Jonathan Edwards would say, It's one thing to believe that honey is sweet. It's another thing to taste it. And the tasting of honey in worship brings you a sweetness that the mind could never have. I remember once I was invited to speak at a youth retreat. And I was young and I was petrified. You know the story, I had to stammer growing up. And when I get nervous, I stammer. And I thought, oh no, I'm just going to stammer my way through. Lord, surely you need to have someone else do this. I remember going up to the hotel room and kneeling on my bed, beside my bed, and I put on some worship music. I didn't have the words to pray, but I remember this song coming over the speakers, and it was the words that the Holy Spirit used. I think it was the John Mark McMillan song, Oh How He Loves Us. I just felt his presence Move that truth of, I love you, I'm here for you, and it melted all over me. To the point of going, Lord, it doesn't matter if I stammer or not. It doesn't matter if I flop or not. I just want to bring glory to you. It's in worship that we're recalibrated. But it's not just worship as counterformation. There's another side to worship that the psalmist brings out in this psalm. That counterformation is one side, but the other side, he says in verse 2, he says, Come before the Lord, our Maker. That worship is not just counterformation, worship is encounter. Worship is meeting with the Lord God, our Maker. Worship is that place of communion, communing with God. The psalmist goes on to say that he is our maker. We are his people. We're the flock under his care. The psalmist knew that in worship, the relational aspect of this great divine and human interaction comes alive. Worship is the place of relationship. The whole Bible is summed up in the great theme and story of God wanting a relationship with us. He created us for intimacy of relationship. We broke that 
by rejecting God, but then the whole rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 to the end of the Bible is God moving heaven and earth and sacrificing all that he had to restore a relationship with you. That's how much God longs to have a relationship with you. And it's in worship where the intimacy, the conversation, the hearing God's voice, that dialogue of knowing your father, knowing you're his child, begins to be real. We see this encounter and this relationship as the normative life of the Christian. Even in the Old Testament, it was the temple. Remember in 2 Chronicles, when God's people began to praise and dedicate the temple, his presence filled it. In Psalm 22, David says, you dwell in the praises of his people. In Ephesians, Jesus has come and now the veil of the temple has been torn so we can all live in the presence of God. In Ephesians, it says, you are now God's holy temple, being built together to be a place for his dwelling. In James 4, it says, come and draw near to God and he will draw near to you. As C.S. Lewis puts it, it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to humanity. Now, God is everywhere all the time, but the biblical story is that there are places of intimacy of his presence. And worship, he promises to be one of those moments where we go beyond singing about God as counterformation and extolling him but suddenly we are singing to him. I remember, if you look back at Psalm 95, I'd love to bring it up actually, if we can bring it up, Psalm 95. You see this interplay in Psalm 95 of this great extolling of counterformation to the intimacy as well. These two sides fill every verse of this psalm. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. So then this counterformation is telling us, come, let's defeat the individualism of society and come together as a community and extol him as our God. And then verse 2, let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and let's be generous and not consumeristic. Let's fight against the materialism of our culture and come before him with gratitude. But then verse three, verse three, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. God, you are king, you are God. I'm not gonna worship these other gods in society, I'm gonna worship you. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks before him. God, you are all powerful. Whatever challenges I'm facing, actually, even the earth is in your hands. You can do all things. Verse 5, the sea is his. He made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And this sea is a place of chaos in the New Testament where evil was, meant, was thought to dwell. So even the most evil God, you are in charge. You made this. And it's reforming us around the great promises that all things work together for the good for those who love the Lord. He is that powerful. But then verse 6 comes. That great counterformation transcends into intimacy. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. As we start to draw close to him in intimacy. 
For he is our God. He's not just a God. He's my God. And I'm, we are his people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Do you see this journey of worship from formation to intimacy? My old pastor in London, a man called Sandy Miller, described it like this. He said, we grew up with songs about God and worship to God, but recently we've been given a language of intimacy in worship. It's like someone being outside Buckingham Palace. He's English, so forgive the illustration. It's like, imagine being behind the gates outside Buckingham Palace, and it's the Queen's birthday, and thousands of people everywhere, the changing of the guards, the royal ceremony, looks amazing. And you're all shouting, we want the Queen, we want the Queen. And every now and again, the, the crowd becomes so loud, the Queen comes out and does her royal wave, and you all cheer, and then she goes back in again. And you say, we want the Queen, we want the Queen. And it's just this great... She's there, her presence is here, and it's just so exciting. But then imagine, he said, if someone comes out of Buckingham Palace, walks through the doors, through the iron railings, forces their way through the crowd, and comes to you, yeah, comes to you and says, the queen would love to meet with you. Follow me. So you, excitedly and nervously, you follow this, uh, this guard through the crowds, through the gates, through the open doors and through the many miles of red carpeted hallways and eventually you get to a room and there's the queen sitting down and she just gestures to a seat to sit down next to her and you're in the presence of the queen. He said, it would be odd, wouldn't it, in that situation for you still to behave as if you're outside and stand on your feet and go, we want the queen, we want the queen. If you did say that, she'd just look at you and go, I'm here. And your conversation shifts to one of intimacy. And he says the church has for centuries had these amazing counterformational hymns, counterformational songs that have reshaped our lives around the gospel. But recently, we've been given a gift of these songs that give words to this intimate moment we have in his presence. where the songs are suddenly simple and almost love songs of adoration, as if you were in the presence of God. And all you can say is, oh God, I love you. One of the great leaders of this resurgence of these intimate songs, which are simple and often repetitive and annoy the heck out of us who sometimes want formational songs, was the Vineyard Movement and John Wimber. And he said, we just wrote these songs to help us give language to these moments of intimacy with God. Where we wrote songs like, oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek. Where it was, draw me close to you, never let me go. See, worship is that place where the Holy Spirit takes us out from outside the gates and takes us into the very throne room of our Father in heaven. That is what Jesus has won for us, to be in the presence of God. Now, I need this encounter. 
I need this encounter. Just as I need counterformational, I need worship to lead me into the place where I can rest at the feet of Jesus or rest in the arms of my loving Father. I need it. I need it because I need to know that I am under His care. When all the time around, all the world around me may be falling apart, I need to know, not in my head but in my heart, that God's got this. I need to know that it's by grace I've been saved and feel that affection and that forgiveness that you can only feel in the presence of Jesus. And in those moments of intimacy, in those moments of closeness, I feel my heart falling in love again and again for my Savior. And if we are to live out his mission, live out his purpose in this city, it's because our hearts are filled with love. See, St. Augustine said this, sin is, in its essence, disordered love. That we are what we love. And we can live all week long and suddenly our hearts are falling in love with the wrong things. And it's in worship again, in the intimacy of his presence, our hearts are set on fire for a new love for him again and again. This is why we need worship. This is the beauty and the journey of worship. So maybe you're like me way back when I was 16, wondering what on earth are all these guys doing? How on earth could they love this so much? But by the Holy Spirit, you can start that journey like I did. The journey into the greatest gift that he's given us. To have our lives shaped by the potter, reshaped into Christ-likeness. And have our hearts set on fire in his presence where everything else fades away.